Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter 2, 11-17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Fear this in the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free and using your freedom Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honoring everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. As Kevin was praying, I was praying along, but I was also praying, and I said, Okay, God, I'm looking at the time. I can tell time. So we've heard the gospel today, again, in what Leah has brought us, in the songs that we've sung, in the prayers that we've prayed. Maybe I just say amen and we send everybody home. (laughs) And I, I prayed about it, and friends, what God has for us today actually applies to this coming week especially. And so again, because of the timeliness of it, I feel like it's something that he wants us to talk about today. And so we are going to go a little bit long. So those of you at home, grab your popcorn, kick back. But friends, this is an important message because Kevin actually beat me to the punch. He beat me to the punch because friends, What we're going to talk about today is the fact that lasting change is not going to come by political power, but by gospel power. Real and lasting change never comes by political power, but by gospel power. And the Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter to a church that had no political power. And they were weathering increasing persecution. Peter likely wrote the letter that Candy just read for us at the beginning of Emperor Nero's reign. And it's clear from the letter, if we read it in its entirety, that there was a persecution that was brewing. There was marginalization of the church. It was increasing, but it sure hadn't reached the fevered pitch that one day it would. You know, followers of Christ in Peter's day, they were feeling hard-pressed. Church, they were feeling hard-pressed to conform to society. They were being marginalized for their refusal to bow to popular opinion, to the intelligentsia, to the gods of the marketplace. They were being persecuted for standing for the truth and being out of step and old-fashioned in their sexual and their social ethics. They were accused of being fools who were destined to end up on the wrong side of history. We can't relate to that today, can we? So how did Peter tell the church to live in a culture that was increasingly hostile to the gospel and to the truth that was revealed in God's Word. Well, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which Candy just read for us, are the crux 
of Peter's argument in this entire letter. Listen to those again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, Peter's advice is live out your identity. Church, live out your identity. As we've been talking about actually the last few weeks, our identity informs our action. Who you are determines how you're going to live. And Peter is reminding the church, this is who you are in Christ. And do you hear the very first thing? The very first thing that Peter says to them, this is who you are. Remember, you are beloved. You're beloved. The unloved and the unlovely, the marginalized and the misunderstood in the culture, the slandered and the scorned by the intelligentsia, the reviled and the rejected by the world, you're the beloved of God. Church, let that name wash over you. Beloved. When because of your message and your master, the world hates you, and ostracizes you, and marginalizes you, and persecutes you, remember, you are beloved. You know, when the world stands up, when they, when they get in your face and they go, hey, who do you think you are? You can answer, I know who I am. I'm beloved. Do you know who you are? I know who I am. I am the beloved of God. And you can say to the world, when you can hate me, marginalize me, slander me, misunderstand me, reject me, you can even kill me because Christ loves me. You can call me old-fashioned, out of step, or on the wrong side of history because Christ has already called me beloved. And it's His opinion that matters. The love of Christ shelters us, church, from the storms of ostracization, marginalization, denigration, incarceration, or even extermination. Christ's love shelters us. No matter how the world might misunderstand, malign, or marginalize you, remember, church, you are beloved. And that changes everything, doesn't it? And along with beloved, did you hear Peter gave the church another label? He said, you're sojourners and exiles. You know, when somebody comes here to Maine, and they exhibit behaviors or attitudes, they're out of touch, or just don't match the locals. You know what the locals do. They go, eh, he's from away. I'm sorry about that imitation. That was a bad imitation. Because I'm from away, too. But the fact is, when somebody is different or out of step with the locals, we identify them as from away. And Peter writes, church, don't forget, you're from away. You're from away. You're sojourners. You're exiles. You're bound to be different from and out of step with the locals. Church, you march to the beat of a different drummer. You're playing to a different audience. You're seeking the love of a different lover. You serve a different master. You're sojourners. You're from away. You're going to think differently. You're going to act differently, live, live differently, love differently, worship differently. You are bound to be out of step with the rest of the world. And just as Mainers might be a little suspicious of those people from away, the world's going to be a little suspicious of sojourners and exiles who are from far, far away. 
because we're going to be so out of step with the majority, the intelligentsia, the spirit of the age. Those who follow a different master and proclaim a different message are always, always going to risk harm and hatred from the locals who are suspicious and just don't understand. You see, Peter here, Peter's just reminding us of what Jesus himself taught. Jesus himself told us in John chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, you're from away. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, if the world didn't like our master, and if when he originally brought his gospel message, they crucified him for it, why do we think it's going to be any different for those who follow him today? Peter warns the church, expect it. Expect to be maligned, marginalized, misunderstood, because you're sojourners. You're from away. You're out of step with the locals. And when that happens, he says, when that happens, not if that happens, he says, when that happens, remember who you are. Remember who you are. You are beloved sojourners. You are beloved sojourners. And as such, you're sheltered by his love. We're not going to go to that slide yet, Samuel. You can go to a blank one. You are beloved sojourners. It's like we sang together today. Minor days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. And one with Christ I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for the battle. It's strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. Friends, the love of Christ is armor enough for this battle. It's strong enough to last our sojourn to the golden shore. So church, followers of Jesus Christ, never forget your identity. Never forget who you are in Christ. You are a beloved sojourner. A beloved sojourner following Jesus Christ. And having reminded the church of their identity, Peter now turns his attention to how Beloved sojourners should live out of faith, their faith, before a watching world. Peter says that while we should never acquiesce to the watching world, church, we should always be aware of the watching world. Do you hear that difference? We do not acquiesce to the watching world, but we are aware that the world is watching. And Peter writes in verse 12, keep your conduct honorable. Keep your conduct honorable. You know, Peter actually talks often about conduct in this short letter. In fact, he uses the word conduct seven times in the first three chapters of this letter. Because we've been talking, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, from our identity comes our conduct. From our identity comes our conduct. So if we are beloved sojourners from away, how then should we live? What should our conduct be before the world? Because we're going to be met with suspicion and even hostility from the locals. And Peter says, so let your conduct be honorable. Now, possibly a better translation of the Greek word that Peter uses here that's translated in this translation as honorable would be the word good or even beautiful. Peter says, let your life conduct before a suspicious world be beautiful. Live a beautiful life. 
Now, now saying that, we have to remember that there are some things that this world says are beautiful that Scripture tells us are ugly. And there are some things that God says are good that the world has rejected as evil. Peter's not saying we should compromise our standards to make it beautiful in the eyes of the world, but we should live a compelling life. Not a compromised life, church, but a compelling life. Not compromised, but compelling. A beautiful alternative to the way the world is living. We should be living a beautiful alternative. In other words, when the world says, well, this is what's beautiful, you should say you think that's beautiful. Check this out. Our lives should be a beautiful alternative to what the world is living. Our conduct before the world should challenge the way the world lives because it's so beautiful. Peter writes, never compromise your behavior for the world, but consider your behavior before the world. Do you hear that? Don't compromise for the world, but consider your behavior before the world. Because the world might be suspicious of you since you're from away. But sojourners, let your conduct before the world be such that when they suspiciously slander you, and when they speak evil against you, let them find only beauty. Peter says, don't let your message be discredited by your lives. Don't let your message be discredited by the way you live. Because, you know, the quickest way, the quickest way to discredit any message is to discredit the messengers. One of the quickest ways to discredit any message in the mind of the hearers, no matter how true that message is, is discredit the messengers who are carrying the message. And Peter says, church, don't let that happen to you. You know, the world might misunderstand you. They might disagree with you. The way you live might even grate against everything they believe. But let your conduct be beautiful. Let it be a beautiful alternative to the way that they are currently living. And friends, although, because although it is easy to argue against the truth of a message, it's hard to argue against the beauty of a message. So Peter says, let your conduct be beautiful. A beautiful and compelling alternative to what the world is offering. And Peter even doubles down in verses 15 and 16. He says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So Peter says, don't let ignorant and foolish people reject your master and your message because of the messenger. Let the beauty of your life mystify them, let it mortify them, but ultimately let it muzzle them. Live lives that offer a beautiful alternative to what this world is claiming is beautiful. Silence their slander, not so much with the brilliance of your words as with the beauty of your life. Don't overpower them with your logic. Church, overpower them with your love. And church, this is good, solid advice for a people with no political power. I've got to tell you, I had somebody this week notice the passage we were going to be studying this morning, and they expressed some concern to me. They said, whoa, there's some pretty political statements in there. So are you going to go get all political on us this morning? You know, and after a contentious political election and the disgraceful storming of our nation's capital and bad behavior and accusations and slander flying from both sides of the political aisle, there is much that could be and is being said. And I have no desire to add to the closed-minded, virtue-signaling, angry cacophony that's 
spewing from both sides of the aisle right now. So the only thing I want to note about this passage politically is that this passage is not actually about political power. Church, this passage isn't about political power. The church to whom Peter wrote had no political power. When Peter wrote, Nero was the emperor and his hostility to Christians was well known. In fact, all of the rulers of Peter's era, era, they were in the words of theologian John Calvin, enemies of the gospel, persecutors of poor Christians, murderers and wicked men. There was no such thing as a Christian emperor, a Christian candidate, or a Christian president. Christian principles were never going to be compelled from the top, so they would have, people would have to be convinced from below. The hope of the early church was not in changing the political order, because there was little chance of that. The hope of the early church was proclaiming the gospel, preaching and living before the watching world a more beautiful way, a more compelling alternative. The early church knew that lasting change was not going to come to this world by political power, but by gospel power. And church, in this day and age, that is a message that we need to remember. Because on Wednesday, there is going to be a change of who sits in the White House. However, church, our ultimate hope has never been who sits in the White House. It's who sits on the White Throne. And those of you who are weeping and wailing with this week's inauguration convinced that Armageddon cannot be far behind, stop it. And those of you who are celebrating and going on and on as if every problem we've ever had as a country is about to be solved and some golden error ushered in on Wednesday's inauguration, stop it. Our Savior has never climbed Capitol Hill. He climbed Calvary's Hill. Our hope is not in political power, but in gospel power. Our hope ultimately comes not from a change brought by any administration or any political power, but brought by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, hear me rightly. In this time, in this country, we can affect political rulers and systems, and so we should and we must vote and advocate and educate and legislate. However, even as we do that, church, Let's remember that our ultimate hope is not in political power. Our ultimate hope never has been and never will be in political power. It will always be in gospel power. The hope of the early church was not in changing the political order of the day, but in proclaiming a gospel that offered a more beautiful way and a more compelling alternative to the way of the world. So church is faithful followers of Christ we might continue to lose influence in this culture. And as we face a new political administration entering the White House, who will undoubtedly be unfavorable to religious freedom and openly antagonistic to the pro-life movement, church, how should we live? How should we live? Remembering our identity as beloved sojourners and remembering the hope that is in the power of gospel. May I offer two suggestions that are good no matter who's sitting in the Oval Office. Church, we should pray boldly, and we should live beautifully. Let's pray boldly, and let's live beautifully. Regardless of who's in the White House or any other position of power, church, pray boldly for them. The Apostle Paul, during the time of Nero, this is what he wrote, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 
First of all, then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And his instructions here and Peter's instructions in today's passage lead me to ask the question, Church, just how powerful do you believe the gospel is? Just how powerful do you believe the gospel is? I think too often our prayers reveal that we believe a very small gospel. Because we think that the only way God's going to accomplish his purpose is by a change of administration. Do you notice Paul doesn't say pray that God changes the administration? Pray that emperor right out of position. The underlying prayer in Paul's instructions is pray that God changes the heart of the administration. Not that God changes the administration, change the heart of the administration. In today's passage, Peter doesn't counsel pray and work for a violent overthrow of the existing authorities. He says in verse 13, submit to authorities. Verses 18 through 21, even suffer unjustly for the sake of the gospel. And not because the church is the servant of the state, because it is not. Peter says, do it in verse 16, because you're a servant of God. Trust and submit yourself to God's sovereign power and control. Don't pray for political power that changes the administration. Church, pray for gospel power that will change hearts. A new administration in the White House can come about by any normal means of political dealing. But a new heart in the administration that's occupying the White House? Church, that's only going to come about by the gospel. So why are we praying so anemically and believing so feebly? Pray boldly. Pray that whoever is in the White House or the governor's office or the legislature or on the judge's bench or a bench or on the select board, pray that the power of their, the gospel changes their hearts. Let's stop praying as though the only thing that prayer is going to change is who is in power. Let's pray as if the gospel has the power to change whoever is in power. Pray that this incoming administration might become the staunchest defenders of the unborn this generation has ever seen. Pray that they might become vocal advocates of religious freedom. Pray that they might stand firmly for all of the oppressed and the powerless and the fatherless and the refugees. Pray that they might speak, legislate, and judge in ways that promote the righteousness and the justice of God. And you hear me say that and you go, Adam, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to believe that we would see anything of that sort from this administration. And I ask you, how big is your gospel? How big is your gospel? So pray boldly. And praying boldly, let's follow Peter's instructions here to live beautifully. Because church, even if the church does not have political power, as it didn't have in Peter's day, the church of Jesus Christ always has gospel power. And that power, that power will allow us to live beautifully. To live beautifully in a way that silences the ignorant and foolish talk of those who would seek to discredit the messenger and thus the message. Peter writes, church. Church, you have the power to live a beautiful alternative. Uh, an alternative so beautiful that it silences those that are slandering you. And church, we need to do the same. For example, today on Sanctity of Life Sunday, we recognize that there have been many attempts to discredit the messengers of the pro-life movement by dis in order to discredit their message. You know, one of the common accusations you hear today is an echo from 1981 Representative Barney Frank from Massachusetts quipped that pro-lifers believe life begins at conception and ends at birth. 
More recently, Sister jo- Joan Chichester, a Catholic nun, said, I don't believe that just because you're opposed to abortion makes you pro-life. In fact, I think that in many cases, your morality is deeply lacking if all you want is a child born, but not a child fed, not a child educated, not a child housed. You know, often this accusation is leveled against the pro-life movement. You're just pro-birth and not truly pro-life. And that accusation, friends, understand what it's trying to do. It's trying to discredit the action or inaction of the messengers in order to discredit the message. Because the argument is, you don't really need to consider or engage the truth of that message because look at the deficiency of the messengers. But church, what if? What if we lived such beautiful lives that it silenced such slander and answered every accusation? What if we as a church, as the people of God, arose and offered a beautiful alternative to the solution that the world is offering pregnant women? Last year on Sanctity of Life Sunday, I referenced an article from the Gospel Coalition website titled, Most Abortion-Minded Women Aren't Calculating Killers. They're Afraid. It was written by a volunteer counselor at a local crisis pregnancy center. And the author reminds us that when women face an unplanned pregnancy, they have some real and some reasonable fears. This woman may fear the loss of financial stability as she already teeters on the brink of poverty. She may fear the loss of a job, which is her only source of income and the only way she's feeding her existing children and paying her rent. She may fear an angry or an even violent and abusive boyfriend, husband, or parent. Many women are seeking abortions not to find some kind of empowering my body is my own experience. Many women who come seeking abortion are simply afraid and looking for solutions. And in 2019, the number one abortion provider in America, Planned Parenthood, reported over 345,000 abortions. And many of those women walked into Planned Parenthood. They were frightened. They were vulnerable. And they were offered a solution. They were offered a solution that they were told promised peace by the violence of abortion. They were offered a solution that they were told offered them freedom, but left many of them with chains of guilt. They were offered a solution that created for many of them more problems. The world offers a solution to frightened women with unexpected pregnancies. And that's abortion. And for many of those women, it feels like the only solution. But church, church, what if we offered a more beautiful solution? What if we compelled women not with political power and laws, not with logic and argument, but with love and beauty? What if by the power of the gospel, we work to create a more beautiful and compelling alternative to the solution that the world is offering? What if by our sacrificial involvement and investment in organizations like Zoe or CareNet, what if in our generosity as single mothers, what if in our provision of child care, what if in our support of adoption and foster care, what if in our advocacy for policies that support families, what if in our hospitality to unwed mothers and fatherless children, what if we created a more beautiful and compelling solution to abortion? And wouldn't such beautiful lives silence foolish talk and ignorance of those who might just try to dismiss out of hand 
the pro-life message. Because it's easy to argue against logic, but it's difficult to argue against love. You might overcome pro-life brilliance, but you're not going to overcome pro-life beauty. So church, let's pray boldly. And let's live beautifully. Because our greatest power never has been, and it never will be political, church. It'll always be gospel. And our greatest weapon is the beautiful life that the gospel creates in us, and the beautiful life that through us the gospel wants to create for those in need. So church, believing that all of life is sacred, pray boldly that all of our leaders might be changed by the gospel and live beautiful lives that are changed by the gospel and changing others' lives by the gospel. For as we sang to open the service, our call to war is to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. So with shield of faith and belt of truth, we will stand against the devil's lies and all of his solutions and an army bold whose battle cry is love. Let's reach out with better, more beautiful gospel solutions to those who are lost in darkness. Church, what part will you play in creating a more beautiful solution to abortion? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us. Help us that we might live the gospel. That the power of the gospel might transform our lives and transform our advocacy and transform this world. That your church might offer a more beautiful, more compelling solution to this world than what the world offers. Father, we give ourselves as your servants and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name.